Amen. That was amazing. I do love our worship here at North River, don't you? And I don't know if uh, what kind of worship music is like your gig, and if it's the acapella that makes you come alive, or if it's, the, if it's the contemporary, or if it's the gospel. But what we believe here at North River that you don't find in many other places is that there's a bunch of incredible ways to worship our God. And as a, as a diverse family of believers, we believe that there's value in learning to worship in ways that's not comfortable for us because we're family doing it together. And so, man, thank you so much to the worship team. Even Chase coming up here and working on the stand for me. Really appreciate that, bro. That is just, that's incredible. Flipping your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing in our series today on in Atlanta as it is in heaven. And uh, we're going to start out with a little bit of framework. But first, uh, in our family, we had a big week today in the Massey family. Jonathan and Seba, my brother and sister, had their baby this week. We're really excited for them. Um, we're not showing pictures yet, but his name is Aragorn Metepo Massey. Aragorn, like from Lord of the Rings. Yes, my brother's epic, you know. Toya didn't let me name my son that, but uh, we're going to call him, we're going to call him Little Arrow. We're really excited about that. And because of that, with family being first, I only have one slide today, all right? because I was focused on a little baby, but I know I just want to be a good example, you know what I'm saying? Focus on the family. But uh, what we're doing today, we're diving into Matthew 5, and we are going to continue talking about the Beatitudes. And, and as a framework for the Beatitudes and the whole Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing, you're going to see, is he is saying what are the values of the kingdom. And what is so incredible about the values of the kingdom is that the values of the kingdom turn the values of the world upside down. And so what the world values in high esteem actually is kind of pushed down or not valued very much in the kingdom. But then what Jesus values in high esteem, the world looks down upon. I mean, think about the topics we've already talked about. Like we have talked about uh, being meek last week. That is put down in the world. This week we're talking about purity and about mercy. Those things are put down in the world, yet in the kingdom, those are some of the most valuable essences of the kingdom of God. One of the illustrations that I love to demonstrate how upside down it is uh, can be illustrated like this. I got good news for you guys today. You ready for this? You're not going to die in an avalanche today. You're welcome for giving you that good news. You know what I mean? Uh, I didn't know if you were worried about that. There's actually dozens of people that die in avalanches every day. And the interesting thing is, is when you're buried by snow, with snow pushing in on every side, you don't know which way is up. So when they, when they dig out, uh, you know, people that have been buried and unfortunately have died in avalanches, a lot of times what they'll find is they'll only be three feet underneath the snow, but they would have dug 20 feet in the wrong direction. Because when you're pushing on every side of pressure on every side, you just think this way is always up, but you might be upside down. And when you're covered by snow, you don't know which way is up and which way is down. And what they tell you to do actually, you know, just in case, you know, any skiers out there, what they tell you to do, they tell you to, you know, dig a little hole around your face and they tell you to spit. And if spit goes up, then you know you're actually upside down. But if it falls this way, well, then you know to climb that way. And they, so they tell you a way to reorient yourself when you can't tell which way's up and which way's down. Now in the world that someone said, nice, you're welcome for saving your life. You know what I'm saying? You're welcome. So in the, but in the world that we live in with the values of this world, the truth is guys, 
is that when we're pushed by all the media and all the different things that we see on our phones and everything else in this world, it is hard to tell which way is up and which way is down. Because the world points us in this direction so many times. They say, go that way, go this, this is what's valuable, this is how to build your life, this is what's most important. And in reality, when we go that way, we're just digging ourselves deeper into the snow. And we have to have a way to reorient ourselves to figure out which way is truly up, which way is true value, which way has true favor with God. And that's exactly what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's where we can find what is truly valuable in the reality of the kingdom of God to learn to walk as a new family as humans in the kingdom of God. Amen? So we're going to continue to dive in that today in Matthew chapter 5. Starting in verse 6, we're going to pick up and we're going to talk about three more Beatitudes today as we piece through a line by line of the Sermon on the Mount. So in verse 6, these are the values of the upside down kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, before we dive into those, um, I did, you know, last week, Kendall talked about how the Sermon on the Mount or, or the Beatitudes are a chiasm. Now, what a chiasm is, for the Bible nerds out there, it, it is a, it's a Hebrew literary tool to help you focus on one kind of central treasure or point of a scripture. And unlike nowadays, which, which is more common to build up to your final point, in a chiasm, a lot of times, the, the center of the text is the final point. And so my one slide today is, uh, this is the Beatitudes chiasm, actually, um, Kim Hoffman has been doing a deep study on the Beatitudes recently as we went through it in campus last, uh, last fall. And he, he sent this to me, talked about it. So I'm using some of his language because I really liked it. Um, where you see, you know, this chiasm, this, this kind of pattern in scripture that's leading to the censure of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, I'm sorry, of the Beatitudes. And it ultimately leads to chapter 5, verse 6 and 7. The, the treasure, the, the, the hidden kind of what we're digging for in the Beatitudes is landing on verse 5 and verse 6. What is true righteousness to God? And if you're familiar with chiasms, a lot of times it might lead to one word or might lead to one kind of central idea. But what's interesting here is that it actually leads to a pairing, a partnership of what is true righteousness, hunger and thirst with, uh, for righteousness in verse Six with God, and how is that always married to righteousness and right restanding and mercy to other people? And this is what the Beatitudes and the Sermon of all, on the Mount is all about. It's the core center. It's how, what does it look like for me to be in right standing with God and with man? And it leads us to that true center. Cool deal? All right, for you Bible nerds out there, you're welcome. That's the only slide I had. I had to sneak it in there. But now we're gonna, now we're gonna dig in to verse six. Let's read it one more time. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You know, as humans, we were made for connection. We were made, I don't know if you've noticed that every human on the planet longs for connection and love and relationship. And that's placed in us to root us because our connection with God, we were designed to let our connection with God be the fuel for which we live this life. But the reality of it is, is that we get that connection so messed up. I want to go to Matthew chapter 4 to illustrate this hunger and thirsting for righteousness, all right? Hunger and thirsting for righteousness, where does our true fuel come from? 
We've been fasting the last couple weeks, haven't we, church? It's been a great time to be fasting together. I hope it's been meaningful for you. Uh, it's, it's helped Toy and I have a lot more times in prayer and going without to learn to be filled by God. And uh, the, in this passage, we get to see one of the times we have where Jesus fasted. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Don't you just love those little nuggets? Oh, he was hungry. Thanks for letting us know, Bible. <laughs> but in verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I love this concept right here, where Jesus, when he is hungry, he literally has not eaten for 40 days. He is hungering and thirsting. And yet when Satan comes to us, he says, no, my fuel is something else. My fuel doesn't come from just food. Man does not live on bread alone, on food alone, but from every word of God. Every word of God. I want to connect these two things. Hungry and thirsting for righteousness. Hungry and thirsting. Man does not live on bre uh, bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I want to go down this idea of how much we need food and connect it to how much we need God. Is that cool with you guys? Okay, so follow me. If you go a couple hours without eating, as a lot of us have been doing these last two weeks, what do you feel? Hungry, right? Or hangry for some of us guys. You know what I'm saying? If we go a day without eating, what do you feel? More <laughs> Starving, right? You're starving. If you go multiple days without eating or a week or two without eating, unless you're intentionally fasting, well, then how do you feel? You're, you're dying. You're literally dying. And, and, and at that point, you're desperate for food. You'll do anything possible in order to get food. And then Jesus says, man does not live on food or bread alone, but the truth is we live on the word of God. The truth is we live off of righteousness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So go down this line with me. If, if that's true for food, then what if you go a few hours without the word of God or connecting in righteousness, right standing with God? What does your soul feel? It's hungry. If you go a day without getting, going into the word of God or that connection, that righteous, right standing relationship with God, connection with God, then how does your soul feel? It's starving. If you go multiple days or a week or two without digging into the word of God or connecting with God and righteousness standing with God, then what does your soul feel? It's dying. It's dying. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus says hunger and thirst, not just for food, but hunger and thirst for righteousness. But you might go, I mean, all of us have gone a day without reading our Bible. Did I just rent it all for us? Am I the only one that has done that? Right? All of us have done that. All of us have gone a day without. I didn't feel like I connected with God today. But a lot of times, I don't really feel it immediately. How about you? And the truth is we get so distracted by the physical things of this world and we fill up the physical so much that we bury the empty soul. And our soul could be screaming. Our soul could be just desperately hungry and starving or dying, but we're so distracted by our devices and by the things that are happening that we don't even know what's happening inside of us spiritually. We have to learn to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Amen, church? Amen. 
Blessed are the people that are so desperate for righteousness that they'll seek after it as if their life depends on it. As if they think this is my very last meal. But what is righteousness? If we're hungry and thirsting for this, what what are we talking about? You know, well, righteousness, in in the Old Testament, uh, righteousness was connected to right standing and the faithful covenant of God. And it was about God's righteousness towards us and how he would make us into right standing. Now, God's faithful covenant is to us, but then there's a piece of us that's also righteousness, which is my willingness and my willing submission to come under the will of God and to live out my new identity in the kingdom of God. And so righteousness is connection with God that comes from my desire to be under his will and then his righteous faithful covenant to shower me with grace and mercy. Does this make sense? So we're, we're ultimately we're desperate for connection and to be under the will of the Father in his kingdom. Now this comes with a promise. If you look back there in verse 6 of chapter 5, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be, what? Filled. It's not a perhaps, it's not a sometimes, it's they will be filled. They will be filled. Everyone in the world is trying to figure out how to be filled. Have you noticed that? How do I find true contentment? How do I find true peace? How do I find true security? I think even the last three weeks, all of us have had that into our mind of how to find that in 2023. How can I be filled? And yet the scriptures say here, it's not in the ways of this world, but it's when you hunger and you thirst for righteousness. That's where we find. It's when we desire this right connection with God and to live under his rule and reign in his kingdom. That's where we will be filled. It's similar into Matthew 6.33. Do you remember that? Seek first his and his and then depending on which translation, you, you know, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and you'll have the desires of your heart, or you'll add all these things onto you as well, or whatever translation you're reading. But it's the same promise, that if you seek this right standing with God, living under his will in the kingdom, you will be filled. So you have to take a step back and ask yourself the question, what am I hungry for? And not just because you ate today, didn't eat yet because you're fasting, but what do you go to sleep thinking about at night? What are your deepest desires? What what is it that you hope for or you want most even just this year? Is it work? Is it something in school? Is it a relationship? Is it money? What is it that you long for and you're hungry for in your life? What are you thirsty for? Because I want to take a second and I want to proclaim this truth this morning and for all of us to take a stand on this promise from God. So church, I want you to listen to me for a second, okay? True fulfillment is found nowhere else besides in God. True fulfillment is found nowhere else. You will never find true fulfillment at work. You never will. You, will ne- you can fill your bank accounts, but money will never fill your soul. No amount of respect No amount of approval, no amount of praise or attention from man will ever be able to give you what God can give you. No girl or boy, no relationship will ever be able to bring you eternal contentment. That's only from God. Don't be fooled by the ways of this world, my friends. Don't buy into the lie. Contentment, security, and peace are not found out there. They're found in here. 
Can we stand on that promise this morning, church? Amen. Let's hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let's be desperate for it as if our life depended on it because the reality is that our life does depend on it. All right, let's go on to the next verse, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. You know, uh, to, to frame this passage, I think it's good for us to look at our culture. So the American culture is extremely individualistic. It's not communal. It focuses on self. The American culture is built around my career and the life that I want. I need to take, take care of me first, no matter kind of who I step on along the way. I focus on my beliefs and on my values and my goals. Instead of seeing myself as a group or as a family first, I see myself first as an individual. I see myself first as a me before I am a we. Are you following? Yet, in the scriptures, it calls us to community. It calls us to live life first as a we instead of as a me. And now in, in, in communal cultures, like in the first century, uh, they would have understood this so much more. Uh, you wouldn't have had my values, would it? you would have had shared values of the family. You wouldn't have just had my goals and my plans first. It would have been the family's goals or the family's plans and that didn't just mean your mom and dad and a couple siblings. It was extended family and friends in the community that were part of the family. And you went through life together instead of all in different individualistic places. You were first a we instead of a me. And this is what the Bible calls us to in community. The Bible calls us to take our identity first as part of the family of God before seeing ourselves first as me. Now, what does that have to do with mercy, you might ask? It's a good question. Here's what I want to say about this. Is that authentic community that the Bible calls us to does not work without mercy. So if you're an individual and somebody hurts you, well, dude, just bump you then. Like, I'm going to ignore you. I'm going to go bitter to you. I'm going to distance myself from you. Or I'm just never going to talk to you again. The mercy is never needed in an individualistic society. Yet when we are a family and our identity is first in a us and a we instead of as a me, when you hurt me, because we are going to hurt each other in a church, aren't we? Because we're human. So when you hurt me, the only option if we're going to stay community as God calls us to is for me to learn how to bring mercy to you and for you to learn how to bring mercy to me. Does that make sense? When you live as a me, you don't need any mercy. But when you live as a we, you can only do that with mercy. Now, mercy is compassion and or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within your power to punish or harm. So when someone's hurt you and you have the ability to, to reap shame on them or to guilt trip them or to, man, I'm going to make you hurt more than you hurt me. When you have that moment, it's to give compassion and forgiveness instead. So for you, when someone hurts you, what's your first response? You know, is it pain? Ouch. Maybe it's anger and frustration. Maybe for some of us, when we get hurt, it's just shut down. And I don't want to feel anything. I want to run away. When you get hurt, what's your first response? And while we all have primal kind of emotions that happen like that, the real question is, what do you do with that? What do you do in that moment when you get angry? What do you do when you in that moment when you shut down? What do you do in that moment when you get hurt? 
Do you take that and work through it? Or is your tendency to go through that to be able to give love and compassion? Or is your tendency just to grow bitter? When someone hurts you, is your tendency to start ignoring them? Is your tendency when someone hurts you to kind of start viewing them first through the critical lens and as if they can never do anything right again? And you start viewing them through how they've hurt you instead of viewing them as a son or daughter of God. Or do you work through it? Do you work through those initial feelings to give them compassion? Do you work through those initial feelings to give them love and to forgive them? My question for us in our individualistic society, guys, is have we forgotten how to give mercy to someone who's hurt us? Because in the world, it's just cancel culture. If someone hurts you, you just cancel them. If someone on media, you just blast them. Some, but have we forgotten? Are we going to be the light of the world that says, we, if it's not out there, it's in here? And we do practice the mercy of Jesus together. Now, one, one thing about mercy is that, you know, this truth right here says that when you are merciful, it brings mercy. Have you noticed that hurt people hurt people? Have you noticed that? And, and that the opposite is true also, that when you bring good into this world, you usually get more good back. You know what I'm talking about? When you bring mercy or you bring forgiveness to a situation, it usually builds more mercy or forgiveness. Now, when Toy and I are in an argument and we're both kind of like heated or feeling our thing, those times when she forgives first, you know, it's only a few times she forgives first. No, I'm just <laughs> But those times she forgives first because she's the better of us. Um, I don't know about you. I hate it in that moment, you know, because when she apologizes to me, when she gives me mercy because I've done something wrong to her and she forgives me, in that moment, something dwells in me from God. In me, I want to respond with, well, I forgive you too. In me, there's something in me that says, well, I need to be mercy in this moment also. And I hate that feeling in that moment. I'm like, don't you dare apologize to me. I still want to be mad, all right? We're still in this, okay? Like, don't, 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 don't diffuse the situation, okay? I don't want any diffusal. If you bring mercy, it's going to make me want to be merciful. I don't want to do that right now. Am I the only one that's like that? And it's just because there's something in us that when you give mercy... There's something in us as disciples that wants to bring mercy back, that wants to forgive, and because mercy breeds mercy. Humility breeds humility. And ultimately, that truth of Scripture, that mercy breeds mercy, is lived out every time that we are merciful. Because the only reason I can ever give you mercy is because how much mercy God has given me. And so His mercifulness makes me give mercy. And it's always that flow. Because the fact is, guys, right now in this moment, that breath you just took in that pause was a mercy of God. The fact that we're alive today is a mercy of God. Having to, a chance, a privilege to know God and be a part of his church, how merciful is he? Having the undeserving forgiveness to wash away our sins. Are you kidding me? How merciful is God? How much mercy have we received? And that core foundation is what guides us to give mercy. I don't know if you've been in that prayer time or in that time when you've gotten counsel or advice from a mentor when you're having a hard time forgiving somebody. But for me, when I have a hard time forgetting somebody and I go out in prayer with the Spirit or I go get advice from a mentor, at some point, 
uh, that mentor brings up to me this question or the spirit puts this idea on my heart. And at some point in the middle of prayer, as I'm struggling with forgiveness, the spirit kind of puts on my heart, am I really not gonna forgive them for that small thing when God has forgiven me from all this? Am I really gonna do that? And in that moment is where the rubber meets the road. And am I really gonna live under the reign of Jesus? Am I really gonna live in the will, under the will of the Father? Am I really gonna bring the kingdom into this world in me as it is in heaven? Not because before we can go in Atlanta as it is in heaven, we have to go in me as it is in heaven and let the will come into me. Man, we are only merciful because of how much mercy we have received. And I don't, for me, I actually have to apologize a lot. I don't know if you'd ever guess that. You know what I'm saying? Like, I love Peter in the Bible. He makes me feel like I have a chance because he says all these dumb things and then Jesus forgives him, right? And uh, over time, I've really had to struggle with this and I've really had to own the fact of how much God has forgiven me. So I'm willing to forgive, to apologize, to be humble and to bring mercy into this world. Amen? All right, verse eight. You guys with me? Yes. See, guys, we can do this without slides. Look at this. We're doing good, man. It's great. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Um, we're not going to dive too much into this right now because we're going to connect it to uh, our teaching on lust in a few weeks. That's going to be a powerful time to focus on purity. But... This is what I, wanna, I, I do want to talk about this morning w- with us about this passage, about purity and seeing God. What human had the most clear view of God ever? It's Jesus, right? That's the one time, I don't know about your kids, whenever you ask them a spiritual thing and they just say Jesus, and you're like, that's a cop-out, bro. You know, but sometimes it is the right answer, right? That is Jesus. He saw God more clearly than anybody else. Now, who was the most pure man that ever existed? Jesus. It's directly connected. That his purity of heart and focus on God, his purity sexually, his purity emotionally, his purity mentally, led him to see God in a way that no one ever else has. You know, the Bible doesn't hide away from what the Pharisees and the critics called Jesus. They came up with a lot of different ways to attack his character and defame him and to put him down in society. You know, when Jesus would hang out at weddings or when Jesus would go into Matthew the tax collector's house and they would have a feast and Matthew would have his other sinner friends there and Jesus is bringing kingdom, you know, the Pharisees and tax collectors, they would say, look at that drunkard. Look at that sinner. Look at that. You think he's your Messiah? He's over there getting drunk. Not that Jesus ever did that, but they, they did whatever they could to defame his name. And they would take these situations that could have been something Jesus did, even though he never did, and they would make fun of him. And what I love about the the Bible is it doesn't hide away from those things. He puts us in this situation to decide ourselves who is real with Jesus. But the thing that I love is when 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 you look at what Jesus did with women and in his purity. You know, what Jesus did with women in that context in the ancient Middle East, what Jesus did with women was scandalous. It was absolutely scandalous. In the ancient Middle East and Jerusalem, women couldn't own land. Women had no voice in court. So even if a guy wronged you and that was the truth, your voice could not say otherwise. And, they, and women were basically property be, to be owned by man. 
During that time in, in Jerusalem, uh, the most popular people in the spiritual world of Jerusalem were the rabbis. And they had disciples following them around the whole country, following their teaching. And there's no such thing as a woman disciple. There's no such thing. A woman can never go under the teaching, under the yoke of a rabbi. That was not allowed, period, in the story. During that time, a woman's hair was considered another private part. So you had to cover it up. And if you, if you exposed your hair, it was like flashing. It was, it, was, it was impure to expose your hair. And in that context, think about Jesus. In that context, Jesus, when no one else had women uh, disciples or women followers, there's a group of women that followed him around the country as his followers. During that time when a woman's voice was not considered in court, Jesus stood up for the adulterous woman in a court-like setting with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. During that context, when a woman's hair was considered a private part, in Simon the Pharisee's house, the sinful woman had come, exposed her hair, and washed Jesus' feet. And when the religious leaders said, you don't know who he's touching you, she's a sinner, and started dogging her, she turned, he turns around and forgives her. This was scandalous. This was like, what are you doing? No one's doing this. This is, this is in, it was so crazy. And yet for those same Pharisees, those same critics that said, you're a drunkard. The same critics that said, you're a sinner. Not once did they say he was an adulterer. Not once did they attack his purity. Even the guys that were trying to kill him and find every way to make it, people want to put him down, that he was such a man of integrity, he was such a man of purity, that even though he was doing these scandalous things in that context, they knew that he was a pure man. And they never once tried to attack it. They never once tried to go after it because he was so pure. He was so pure, and he was truly bringing a new purity to that culture that they didn't quite understand. Yes, Jesus was pure in heart, and because of that, he saw God. Amen? Jesus was pure. Jesus was merciful. Jesus was filled with a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. When we read the Beatitudes, we're reading the favor of God. The favor that Jesus lived in, he's saying, and now he's saying that, is, that favor is available for you now to live out. But how do we do that? This is what I want to talk about in closing. How do we do this? How can we hunger and thirst for righteousness? How can we be pure? How can we be merciful? Well, it's to keep our eyes set on the author and the perfecter of our faith. Because we believe that we believe in, and wait, that's not what I want to say. I'm wrong place in my notes. All right, this is what happens when we don't have slides too, guys. There you go. You know, we're, we believe that we're bringing the kingdom into this, into this age crashing down. And the truth is, like we talked about a month ago, is that this kingdom goes someplace after death. There's a reality that after you die, there's one of two places you can go. You can continue living in the kingdom of God for all of eternity and in, in the, the life to come, or you go to the second death in hell. And while all of us long for life after death, all of us long for heaven after death, all of us long for that kingdom, my question to you is, if the kingdom is filled with purity, and the kingdom is filled with mercy, and the kingdom is filled with righteousness, will you fit in? 
Will you fit in? I think so often we want to live how we want to live now, not take the Bible seriously, and just expect like we'll really love heaven. The truth is, if your life is, it has impurity in it and lust in it, or it's full of bitterness and anger and pushing people aside, then you're not going to fit in in heaven. You're not going to belong there. You're not even going to want to be there. And what God is calling us to, what Jesus is calling us to, is to live out that age to come now. And to bring kingdom, to bring heaven crashing into this present age now. And so I'm living as if I was in heaven now. And so whether I'm right here in 2023 or whether I'm over here in life after death in 3023, I'm living the same way. I'm living under the will of the Father. And this is only possible if we focus on Jesus. Amen, church? You know, we really believe in and value remembering Jesus every week. And the way we do this is we do it in communion, where if you're new to Christianity, or if this is your first time here with us, we take communion. The bread represents the body of Christ. The, the juice represents the blood of Christ that was spilled for us and to give us forgiveness. And we remember this every week as we see in the scriptures. And as we work through the Sermon on the Mount, when we believe that on the times we're really focused on the life of Jesus, like what we just were with purity, we're going to take communion after the sermon just to continue to remember Jesus. And other times we'll, we'll take it as a standalone like we've done so, so often, just so you know the direction we're going and why we switch it back and forth. But today, as we take communion, let's remember the mercy of Jesus. Let's remember the purity of Jesus. And let's remember how Jesus hungered and thirsted for righteousness. Let's pray now for communion. Father God, we are so blown away by Jesus Christ. Uh, he, he was perfect. He was without blemish. Even when he was uh, doing things that were scandalous during that context, his purity and integrity radiated to all those around him. And God, we, we, we come before him now and we worship him and we remember Christ. We remember his life. We remember his death. And we remember his resurrection. And Father, as he has opened up the kingdom for us to enter into now, I pray that we can let the Beatitudes soak into the core of our being. That this won't just be something that we are interested in, but this is, will be something that we take our identities in. That we will be merciful and hunger and thirst for righteousness and be pure just like Christ. We worship you, we praise you, and we serve you. And in Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.